Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 55 of The Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And it's been a good week. We got to spend Monday together. The whole day. It was so much fun. We went up to Concord, Massachusetts. Yeah. So you guys will be hearing more about that on our Biblio Adventure segment. You had a couple things you wanted to talk about before we get into our regular. Yeah, I did. I wanted to give one correction, a real quick thing. I mentioned in a prior episode that there was a new edition of Pilgrim's Progress that came out. I had misspoke and said it was from Yale University Press. That was actually from B&H Books which is a Christian publisher. So that edition is actually a modern English version of Pilgrim's Progress with reflection notes and biblical passages to read in, in connection to that. And who's the author of Pilgrim's Progress? Um, I want to say Paul Bunyan, but I think it was John Bunyan. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Bunyan, yeah. who knew? He did yeah. so many things. Yeah. Bunyan, I believe. Okay. I, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we may have another uh, <laughs> correction. correction next time. So anyway, the book that I was thinking about from Yale that I picked up at not this year's book expo, but the year before, that was actually a new translation of Beowulf by Stephen Mitchell. Okay. So I had confused the two in my mind. Right. So, so many books. So many books. Yes. And then the other thing I wanted to say that... The English Patient won the Booker Golden Award. The Man Booker Golden, or the what, what, what were they calling it? The Golden Man Booker? I can't remember. It I was for remember. the 50th anniversary, yeah, right? Yeah, the 50th yeah. anniversary. So this was a popular vote. Right, and they threw all the books that had won yeah. into the poll, and right? And put them up for voting to right. see which one everybody thought was the, quote, best. Right. But then what happens is there's a lot of conversation about, well, it was also a, a hit movie. How many yeah. people know about the book from the movie? How many people never even read the book but saw the movie? And when you do a popular vote, what are you really voting on? Are you voting on the movie or the book? You would think people, though, who are hip to the whole man booker thing would be bibliophiles. You know, I don't know. Yeah, you never know. Yeah. I mean, it just makes me wonder about the, the uh, PBS Great American Read, mm-hmm. which, you know, you can vote daily on those 100 books that they have up there. Right. From what, when did that start in June through mm-hmm. September? Right. So what book is going to win? I bet it's going to be a book that's had a movie adaptation, at least one. Yeah. I don't think a book that didn't have a movie a- adaptation has a chance. Well, we'll see. Especially if it's an older book. Yeah. I mean, I was surprised by The English Patient win, I have to say. Not because I didn't think it was a good book. It's just that this competition was stiff, totally. you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Did yeah. you Were you pulling for any book in particular? No. Mm-mm. Yeah. I, I have to admit, I didn't pay a whole heck of a lot of attention until the winner was announced. Yeah. Did you vote? I don't think I did. No, mm-hmm. I, didn't I didn't vote because I don't really follow the list. And yeah. sure, a lot of those titles were familiar to me, but I didn't. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't. I wasn't pulling for any in particular. Well, I also wanted to just mention that one of our listeners, Don, posted, I think it was on Facebook. It was some version of social media. I can't remember which one that she watched one of our videos oh. and she had our she had our faces and our voices. What do you call it? Mixed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And because I think she was, she had gotten to the episode where we, I think you talked about seeing Dr. Ruth or something. Yeah. You were so surprised to see the voice coming out of that body. And Mm -hmm. I had the same experience with Noah Adams, who was a, you know, an NPR 
commentator and he actually stayed I used to have an apartment in the back of my house in Ohio and he came and stayed there and I was completely starstruck (laughs) but then when I saw him I was like really that voice that body and face who knew you know you like you have this image of people so anyway Don had our images reversed so I thought that was hilarious (laughs) and I can totally relate Don um and thank you for listening absolutely (laughs) So what are you currently reading, Chris? Well, I just started Middlemarch by George Eliot. Yay! Late last night, I was going to read Maud Martha by Gwendolyn Brooks. And I, I do really want to read that book, but I thought, I really want to read Middlemarch. I want to... So I just did. I started. I've only... I read the brief introduction to the edition that I have and then the preface. So tomorrow probably is going to be the next time... I have to read, and I will have complete focus because I'll be on a plane for a little bit. Yeah. So I can't wait. I love airplane reading for that very reason. Now, this is, isn't this the book, I want to say this book was one of your, either the TBR challenge Mm -hmm. or the goals of 2018. Oh, yeah, it was. It was in my, the roof, roof, roof beam, oh my gosh, I can't talk, roof beam readers blog uh, Mm -hmm. by Adam he does a, a TBR challenge, so okay. where you pick 12 books that have been on your TBR, your to-be-read list, for more than a year that you really want to get to. So it was one that I chose of really wanting to get to this year. Great. So And is it over? Is it a big book also? I it is know. a big book. I think it might be about 700 pages, okay. 600. Yeah, I'm that's not a big 100%, 100% sure. This is the one that I had the little mass market edition for right and bought the quality paperback version recently so i could actually so you didn't have to travel with a magnifying glass yeah (laughs) yeah and i did actually check out the a digital edition too the they have that same edition i'm reading in digital Mm -hmm. so i can always have that as a backup too i'm thinking if i'm out and about i could just have that in my little purse yeah yeah Yeah. so good How about you? I am reading The Masterpiece by Fiona Davis. Um, This book is coming out... When is this book coming out? On August 7th. And um, I got a copy of it when we were at Book Expo. So thank you to, I think the publisher is Dutton, right? That's how you say it. That's Dutton. Dutton. Yeah. And um, I'm enjoying it. I'm not very far in, but it's... uh, Fiona Davis is the author who takes famous buildings and then kind of inserts historical fiction story in it. I have to admit, I'm about 50 pages. I think that I'm now I want to know what is true and what isn't true and yeah. that sort of thing, you know. But um, but this one takes place in Grand Central Station. That's so cool. Which is a building that I just adore. I mean, every time I walk in that building, I look up and think, this is amazing, yeah, you know. absolutely. So I'm enjoying it. The Masterpiece by Fiona Davis. And now just read. Is that oh, all? Actually, I'm also reading. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I gave Chris a blank look, so she's like, am I doing something wrong? I am also reading Meg Jo Beth Amy, The Story of Little Women and Why It Still Matters by Anne Boyd Rue. Nice. And I'm really enjoying it. It's very readable. Yeah. It's not, you know, super academic at all. It's not at all. I yeah. I read, I guess I'm reading it too. Yeah. Um, I read the, the last chapter first just because it's about the Gilmore Girls and Little Women and I mm-hmm. couldn't resist that. And it is. It's 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 smart, but really active reading. There's yeah. there's no academic jargon. It's not dry academic stuff. So don't let the fact that she's a professor right scare you from picking it up. <laughs> it's it's really fun, engaging reading. Right. And we yeah. interviewed Anne 
And we will be putting that out later in August. So stay tuned for that. But we do have a copy of the book to give away. Yes, we do. We're really excited because this book is not publishing until August 21st. So if you are interested in the giveaway, please email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. By, I think by August 1st. Why don't we do August 1st? Should we do that? That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, or actually, we're going to pick a winner on August 1st, so yeah. have your email into us by July 31st. Yep, just saying that you're interested in winning it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. bookcougars at gmail.com. And we're asking, too, that people who enter to win become subscribers to our email list. Yeah. So you'll be, you'll be signed up to receive future emails. Right. Just once a, one a month. Yep. It won't be a big deal. Yeah, you can subscribe by going to our website, bookcougars.com. I'll put all of this in the show notes, too. So you can also just go to the show notes for this episode to get all of the directions. <laughs> so again, that's Meg, Joe, Beth, Amy, The Story of Little Women and Why It Still Matters by Anne Boyd Rue. All right, now. Now. Is it safe to say, yes. what have you just read? <laughs> it is. <laughs> I finished The Girl Who Smiled Beads by Clementine Weimarayu. And I think I said in the last episode, I couldn't remember where I got this book. Mm -hmm. And then I had this aha moment when I was reading it that Michael Kindness gave it to us. It was in the stack of books he gave us when he was on... with us back in, I think it's that early spring. At the at the rest stop. Yeah, yeah. And um, this says the sub, what does he call The subtitle for the book is A Story of War and What Comes After. Clementine and her sister Claire were victims of the genocide in Rwanda. And one day the mom and dad saw bad things coming and said to Claire and Clementine, go walk to your grandmother's house run basically clementine was six years old and her i think her sister claire was 12 at the time and they did and then they got to grandma's house and they were living just fine and then the war affected that area as well and so they ended up fleeing and walking running busing all sorts of things to seven different african countries before they ended up getting a chance to come to the united states And it is such a good book. I was completely lost in this book. It's fascinating. What ends up happening is that Clementine gets the opportunity to live with an American family to go to school during the week. Mm -hmm. And then on the weekends, she goes back to the apartment that her sister lives in, who's, who's now so much older. She's married and has three children. One of the children her sister Claire had while they were doing all of this fleeing. And so they were fleeing as two children themselves with a baby. And so she gets to the United States and she gets the opportunity to go to school. And she's very taken by literature. And the first book that really speaks to her is Night by Eli Wiesel. And what speaks to her is the fact that he doesn't portray himself as a victim. And that's something she could really identify with, mm-hmm. that, you know, that the way that he survived was very familiar to her about the way that she survived her circumstances. And so she gets the opportunity to write an essay. Eli Wiesel, I think, I don't know if it was a foundation, somebody sponsored an essay contest and she wrote one about her experience with that book she won long story short she ended up on oprah and oprah brought she um claire and clementine thought that their mother was their parents i should say were were dead from the war but they weren't 
and Oprah brings the parents to the show. I guess when I was talking to someone about this, they were like, oh, yeah, I remember seeing that. Oh, you know, yeah. I lost track of Oprah as I was raising my kids and stuff. But And eventually her parents come to live in the United States. And as you imagine, it's culture shock to come here. And, and Clementine really lived a life of culture shock mm-hmm. and still does to this day. But she talks about her career really is about being a refugee and talking about it. And as someone who's involved in philanthropy, there's a a point where she's on a panel with very wealthy philanthropists and they're not really listening to her. And she turns to them and says, you know, would you like to hear my story? Are you interested in my story? Good for her. Yeah. And also really talked about how philanthropy isn't about saving people. It's about listening to people and then offering to help in a way that they need help. Yeah. That they decide is helpful. Right. And that meant so much to me because it's one of the things that I have seen. You know, I've worked mostly with family philanthropies. It's one of the things I've seen them struggle with. Giving away money is not easy. And part of why it's not easy is because you don't have the perspective to understand sometimes what people need. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I just, that part of the book really spoke to me. I think she is an incredibly strong, resourceful. She and her older sister especially is incredibly resourceful. And the story she tells about Claire, her sister, just, you know, working systems to get what they need to get fed and clothed and to keep safe is amazing. Now, is that, I'm sorry, is that a novel or is it nonfiction? No, it's a memoir. It's a memoir. It's nonfiction. Yeah. And she did have a co-writer. And I was going to ask you, like, I never really know what that means. Is it just because she needed someone to help her through the writing process? or? Yeah, it could be. I mean, I, I think it, people have co-writers for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's to help them flush out their ideas or for pacing. Because, mm-hmm. you know, usually when it's a ghostwriter, from what I've understood, a ghostwriter actually writes it. Right. And, you know, the person might be, they'll be interviewed perhaps, mm-hmm. um, but a ghostwriter actually writes it. And when there's a co-writer involved, that's usually somebody helping them to tease out the story in a more mm-hmm. effective manner. Because her name's on the book. So it's oh. Clementine Maria and Elizabeth Wheel. And so ghostwriters don't, their name doesn't appear on the no. book. No, ghostwriters are usually not named at all. Yeah. That's the term, I suppose. Yeah. But, and usually yeah. I'm sure they sign all sorts of documents, legal documents saying that they will not say. Because sometimes it's an open secret. That there's a ghostwriter and who that person is. And other times, it's unknown. Right. Like, I remember when I was at Cecile Richards' event, woman comes out on stage and Cecile says, oh, that's um, my co-writer. Mm-hmm. But her name's not on the book. I mean, I think she does thank her in the acknowledgments. Or maybe it's inside. But definitely, you know, I'm looking at the book on my bookshelf right now and you just see Cecile Richards. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, I wonder yeah. how much of it is a, a personal decision. Yeah. Versus uh, the publisher saying yeah. this is how it's going to be. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting. That's a very, I love the cover of this book. Yeah. Because when you first glance at it, it does look like barbed wire, which is such a symbol of war mm-hmm. in the, at least from the 20th century. And the girl who smiled beads, when you look closer, the little bumps that are normally the spikes of barbed wire are actually beads. Yeah. And this, the girl who smiled beads is a story that she kind of weaves through the book um, that was originally told to her by someone who worked for the family. So, and at one point, she starts to make beaded things when she lives in the States as mm-hmm. a kind of a therapeutic thing for her as well. I just, I can't 
speak highly enough of this book. I It was a page turner, you know, because you want to know how they're going to survive all these things. And what she does is every other chapter, the one chapter is them fleeing the genocide, and then the next chapter is her in the state. So it goes back and forth in time as well. And there's a map in the front of the book that includes all the different countries that they went to, which was interesting, too, because I certainly am not very literate with my uh, African countries. And if you just remind yourself of the age they were, too, it's just unbelievable. So I thought it was a very good book. The Girl Who Smiled Beads, A Story of War and What Comes After, Clementine Wamaria, and Elizabeth Wheel. And it is out. It came out in April of 2018. Great. Well, I actually just DNF'd a memoir. Mm. Um. The World As It Is by Ben Rhodes. I didn't DNF it because it wasn't interesting or because it wasn't well written. I'm just not that interested in politics or the Obama administration to read the whole memoir mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. Um, what I did read was engaging. I, I read the first couple chapters, and I, I actually did read the last chapter. I don't know when I started doing this, <laughs> but I was just kind of curious. Uh, and I... I Dipped in here and there, but there's no way I could say that I actually read it. It was more of a DNF. But mm-hmm. if you're into politics or want to know more about the inner workings of an administration, a presidential administration, you might want to check it out. Yeah, and you know what else I do with books like that? Because for me, part of it is just, you know, there's only so much time. Mm-hmm. You know, if I could read all day, every day, that's the kind of book that would be on my list, but I can't do that. Yeah. And what I like to do with books like that is, you know, he had an interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, very interesting and Informative, And then also what I'll do is read the book review, you know, the New York Times book review or whoever you like to read your reviews, because particularly with nonfiction, when I read a review word for word, I feel like I get a pretty good synopsis of what it's about. You know, of course, it's not the same as reading the book, but right. um, But I definitely recommend the interview that he did with Terry Gross. It was very interesting. And, you know, he had a real inside look at the administration. And those are always interesting books to read if you have the time to do so. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, there are moments of hope in there. The last election and people being worried about what was going to happen and at one point ben says you know progress doesn't happen in a straight line Mm, yeah that's a good one yeah Yeah. that was the world as it is now available written by ben rhodes it's a memoir well we're just on a memoir track because i finished animal vegetable miracle a year of food life by barbara kingsolver and it also um is authored by stephen l hop and camille kingsolver This is the story of her family moving to their family farm in Appalachia and deciding that they were going to eat only local food for a year, with a few exceptions, one of which I'm sure you can relate to was coffee. (laughs) They were like, no matter what, we're just not willing to give that up. So the main body of the book is written by Barbara Kingsolver, and it goes month by month of, you know, what they're producing on the farm, what they're making, little adventures they have. And then her husband, Stephen Hopp, who is a professor and a birder and all sorts of things, hops in and does kind of a scientific, I'm using air quotes, piece, you know. And then Camille, her daughter, writes a little essay. And then she includes a week worth of meals that they prepared and just things that she's learned and recipes, which cool. so this book was like, <laughs> that's totally like, yeah, so that's... right up my alley. It's been sitting on my shelf for years because Jacob actually got this for a class he did um, on food in college. And 
when he brought it home, I said, oh, this is one I definitely want to keep because I know I'm going to want to read this eventually, you know, and sure enough. And what I actually did was listen to it on mostly on audio. Barbara Kingsolver narrates, and then um, her husband and her daughter do their little pieces. That's great. And just to give you a, a picture of like the type of thing that he that her husband did, he was talking about oily f- food, which is the carbon footprint kind of a food based on the input of fossil fuels required. And he says a quick way to improve food-related fuel economy would be to buy a quart of motor oil and drink it. More palatable options are available. If every U.S. citizen ate just one meal a week, any meal, composed of locally and organically raised meats and produce, we would reduce our country's oil consumption by over 1.1 million barrels of oil every week. One meal. One meal. 1.1 million barrels of oil every week so they make a very compelling case for eating local now obviously and they understand this you know not everybody can farm their own food and you know can their vegetables and all that because obviously if you're gonna if you live in an an all seasonal environment in other words not in california yeah you know you have to do a bunch of canning and you know putting food up and freezing and all of that and yeah and they butchered their own animals. They had turkeys and chickens and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And then they also lived in an area where they could, I think they tried to eat local within a hundred mile radius of where they lived mm-hmm. so they could get meats from other producers and things like that. It was a great book. I loved it. For anyone who likes food, you will <laughs> love this book. Did you cook some recipes out of it yet? I have not, but and I haven't gone to the website. When they talk about that, there's only, you know, a handful of recipes in here, one for each chapter, but they have a lot of recipes on the website, so I definitely want to go to that. And this time of year, for most of us, is the time to be canning some tomatoes. I mean, that's later in August, but, you know, zucchini, you know, mm-hmm. there's always the joke of the zucchini, how much can you do with zucchini? Yeah. They give you a lot of ideas. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I had a neighbor who would always put all these zucchinis on our porch, and I'd be yep. like, Nancy, you got to stop. Well, she tells a hilarious story about someone putting zucchini in their mailbox, and she's like, are you kidding me? Know. You know, we have a farm filled with zucchini. Like, who would, you know, I want to set a camera up. Who would possibly leave me a zucchini, you know? Some, some poor person's like, okay. If I put a zucchini in everybody's mailbox in the county, maybe I can get rid of a third of mine. Exactly. Oh, my God. But they do a lot of, you know, like zucchini chocolate muffins are actually really good, you know, stuff like that. So so I really enjoyed it. And I actually ended up mostly listening to it. I thought I was going to go back and forth. Mm-hmm. I went, you know, I read a little bit, but mostly it was a good listen. And she's um she's a great narrator That's of her own work. And I used the Libby app for the first time. Mm-hmm. How did it work? I liked it. I It took me a while to figure out. I couldn't find the 15 second back, 15 second forward mm-hmm which I use a lot, you know, because you walk out of the room or you get distracted or whatever. And I had to just kind of like pull down on the app and then that appeared. So that was a little frustrating to me until I found it, Yeah, you know. But it was fine. I mean, it looks nice. Mm -hmm. It's not any... But I didn't have any problem with the other one with Overdrive, Yeah, you know. Mm -hmm. So I might go back and forth. I don't know. We'll see. So again, Animal Vegetable Miracle, A Year of Food Life, Barbara Kingsolver... Well, another book I read was one I picked up when we were in Concord at Orchard House. And since I mentioned it recently, I thought, oh, I'm going to pick this up and read it. Transcendental Wild Oats 
by Louisa May Alcott. I just, I remember the first time I heard that title, I laughed because <laughs> Transcendental Wild Oats, like, oh my gosh, it just sounds funny from the get-go. So I was really happy to finally read it. It's a satirical piece about her father's experimental utopian commune, Fruitlands, and that was 1843. And she didn't re- write this until some 30 years later, But in 1843, when they were living in this experimental society, she was 10 and 11 years old. And it's really, it's a funny book. Like, if you know some of the, if you just were to pick this up and read it, you'd probably not think it was all that funny. Although I think the writing is really good as far as humor writing goes. But I think if you understand more of the context, it's like really funny, but also really makes me mad because Louisa pokes fun at her father's ideals, you know, his philosophical lofty ideals and shows how ineffectual and ruinous they were in real life and Mm -hmm. just impossible to execute. But all of the burden falls on the mom. Mm -hmm. She's the one trying to keep the kids fed. You know, she's the one trying to do the sewing because part of their principles are they're only going to eat what grows. They don't eat meat. They don't eat butter or anything like that. And they won't wear clothes that's made out of cotton because of slavery. And they won't wear clothes that's made up out of wool because it's taken from the animal. You don't take food or leather or fur from an animal because it's theirs. Right. That's one of the... So they ate apples. Philosophy. So they ate apples. And I mean, it's just really funny because like these guys are trying to to do the work and you're supposed to do the work that speaks to you when it speaks to you. (laughs) So if you're trying to establish a farm and you're just working when the mood takes you, you're not going to get very far. And then they're not communicating. So like in one scene, they discover later, I guess, in the day that three men planted three different seeds in the same field and they're like oh well we'll see what comes up you know that kind of thing so yeah wow yeah so it didn't the the experimental community did not last long but this was at a time when these utopian societies were sweeping the nation Mm -hmm. and and apparently this edition there are two letters from bronson alcott and his um philosophical partner charles lane And then there are also some excerpts of surviving diaries that little Louisa kept when she was 10 and 11 Hmm. um, to to see what her days were like there. Wow. But the the actual Transcendental Wild Oats I thought was really funny and really, really well written and really just dry, you know, and I I wonder if she had to wait that long, you know, for, for it to be safe for her father to maybe see you know, the humor in it. Because yeah. at first I thought, before we went to visit Orchard House, I hadn't paid attention to the lifespans of everybody. And mm-hmm. at first I thought maybe she waited until he passed away because maybe he never would have had a sense of humor yeah. about it. But he outlived her. So she wrote this, obviously, while he was still alive. So. Oh, did he? I thought she died after he did. But just like a month or two or something. Oh, I thought he did outlive her. Maybe not. Because he lived to be in his 80s, I thought. And she died in her 30s, didn't she? No, she was older than that. Yeah. Oh, this is why yeah. I'm not a his- good yeah. history buff. Yeah. I can't yeah. keep dates. Yeah, she was older than that. Okay, she, that, that portrait that was, yeah. in, that was when she was 39. Okay. I think she was only like in her 50s or something. Okay. But yeah. So maybe she yeah. did outlive him. Maybe she wrote it fast after he passed away. We'll, <laughs> <laughs> well this was, it was first published in 1873, I think. 
Okay. And it was first published in a newspaper. But oh, what's funny okay. is at the end when it's falling, you know, everything's falling apart and <laughs> the partner announces that he's leaving. Bronson Alcott, or the character, you know, goes to his bed and basically has his own little pity party <laughs> until his wife, named Hope, comes <laughs> and resurrects him, basically. Oh, so, yeah. um, Which I'm sure um, Ms. Alcott had to do on many oh, occasions. Yeah, but, I just, yeah. you know, there are so many, there's, I know there was a, an important joint biography done of Louisa May Alcott and her dad. And I believe it like won a Pulitzer and everything. Mm. But I'm interested in reading something about the mom. Yeah. Cause like, how did she put up with this, mm-hmm. this, you know, and we'll talk more about yeah. this when we have our March conversation, yeah. but somebody who is such an idealist. Yeah. When in real life, in reality, there are things that need to be done. Yeah. For children. To survive. Yeah. Like how, and, and there's that one point in, Little Women, when Marmy's talking to Joe about her anger, and she yes. says, I'm angry every day of my life. Yes. I'm thinking, like, yeah, yeah. But look who you're married to, right? right? Exactly. <laughs> and ah, you're a woman right, in America. Exactly. Yeah. Back in the day. Yeah. So the only other book I read was March by Geraldine Brooks, which we're going to do our read-along discussion at the end at of the, the end segment. Of this, yeah. I mean, the end of the episode. Po- episode. Yeah. Everybody, just so you know. Did you read anything else? Or? I did not, okay. other than March. Yep. Biblio Adventures. Yeah, we went on like to the mothership. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> da, 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 da. Concord. I mean, when I, I have fantasized about going up there for so long, it was so much fun. Yeah. It was such a great day to finally go up there. We had great weather. It was a little steaming sticky. Summer. Um, but yeah. yeah, summer. Such a great time. And it was, what, about a two-hour drive? Yeah, it wasn't bad at all. Yeah. Um, we did some recording along the way. And yeah. We're going to... We're going to put that into the into this episode. Chris is going to be the uh, editing try. maestro. Yeah. <laughs> we did a lot of little different recordings throughout the day. So you will hear that at some point in this in this segment. Hey, everybody. It's Chris and Emily, and we are in the car. We're on our way to Orchard House, which is in Concord, Massachusetts. And we thought we'd take you along on a ride with us. Hello. I'm driving, which is actually very unusual. Usually Chris is driver in the group she prefers it that way i do i have control issues (laughs) (laughs) but she's controlling the mic and the recording because she's also the uh recording maestro so so basically what you guys are finding out today is chris does everything (laughs) (laughs) but i'm gonna drive today and we're we have a lot of stops yes we do and i do have to add that navigating is the hardest job i think True. I am a yeah. really bad navigator because I'm usually like zoning out, daydreaming, looking out the window and, you know, exits and turns go whizzing by. So. So by the end of the day, who knows where we're going to end I know. So, since yes. uh, Chris is apparently navigating today. We'll see. I do have my GPS set. So hopefully we'll actually get to Concord. Hi, everybody. We're standing outside of the Barrow Bookstore. It's a used bookstore that we just happened upon as we were heading to the Concord Bookstore. Yeah, we our first stop in Concord was at the Free Library, which was fantastic. We Unbelievable. took some great pictures um, from inside the library. And so we were walking down Main Street, and we saw a sign for a used bookstore, so you know we had to stop. Yes, of course. Yeah. So it was established in 1971, and it's just adorable. Great yeah. shop. 
the, yeah. the, she just told us the lore of the store is that a woman wanted to sell books, so she loaded up a wheelbarrow with books, and then the wheelbarrow got too heavy, so she couldn't push it. Yeah. So she decided to open a store, thus the name Barrow, Barrow Bookstore. Yeah, I think she said it was like an old flower cart or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's, I guess, on their logo is a, a, a Barrow so, great yes. shop. Check it out if you're in the area. Yeah, wonderful. Nice to meet you, Jamie. Yes. Ta-ta. Hey, everybody. We're back again. We were just at the Concord Bookshop. Yeah. Bookstore. Is it bookshop book- or bookstore? Uh, bookshop. The Concord Bookshop. Really beautiful bookshop. We did not, sadly, get enough time to shop there because we ran into Don Rennert, who owns the store, and had a lovely conversation with her. Um, we're hoping to get back there after we gallivant. Yes, we did some eating as well. We had lunch next door at Sally Ann Food Shop. Delicious. It was a recommendation by Don. Yes, it was um, good. I had the chicken chili with cornbread, which was delicious. And I had a piece of quiche and a muffin and a latte. So if I'm talking a little fast, you'll know I don't drink coffee that often. So <laughs> look out, Anne. Here we come. One yeah. book cougar high on caffeine. <laughs> and we're sitting outside of Orchard House. Orchard House. Yeah. Waiting to go in. So cool to be here. We had to kind of park on the side. There's a lot of cars here. A lot of people walking in, streaming down the road. It's really Taking cool. Taking pictures. Yeah, it's really fun. I'm sure it's a little bit busier because of the conversational series that's going on, but I also think it probably draws people because there's definitely, like, we just, as we were parking, a woman with four younger kids came strolling past us going in. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll tell you more after we tell get inside. We get inside. But on the way here, we did see Ralph Waldo Emerson's house. It's not open today. It's Monday. Um, it wasn't open, but we did take a picture, so we'll definitely share that on our social media. It was cool to see. Yeah. I mean, Concord's just an awesome town. Yeah, it's crazy. It's so cool to be walking down the street where you know so many of these iconic 19th century American writers walked. Yes. And I guess we didn't, did we, we didn't record after we left the library, did we? I don't know if we did. I can't remember. I remember. That's terrible. Yeah. I don't think we did. We but stopped we, yeah, at the we public went, library. The public library was our first stop. And Unbelievable. Yeah. Really beautiful. Yeah. Lots of um, busts of famous authors. Mm-hmm. Lots of Alcott. Lots of Alcott, Emerson, um, Hawthorne, yeah. Melville. There was a Not th- Melville, sorry. Oh, Thoreau. <laughs> Thoreau. There was a Thoreau reading room, which was the quiet room, which yes. I thought was appropriate. Yeah. So... Yeah, yeah, really beautiful library. We took yeah. pictures there. When you walk in, there are like three levels of books with the wraparound balcony right, that are right. not open to the public at yeah. this point. But I mean, God, it's so gorgeous to look at. Yeah, it has a little wrought iron balcony. I really wanted to go in. I wanted to break in. Yeah, I know. I had to hold her back. <laughs> I, that got that happened before Emily had coffee because now that she's had the coffee. <laughs> I might not have been able to restrain That's right. her. There's yeah. no holding me back once I have caffeine. <laughs> it seems like a library, you know how people dream about getting locked accidentally in a library overnight? Yeah. That would That's be one to do that it would be pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. They had a lot of lovely glass closed bookshelves right. that were locked. Yeah. And had a lot of first editions uh, behind the glass. And they had card in them, you know, like mm-hmm. um, checkout call cards, call, call, yeah. checkout cards, call cards. Um, so I was wondering if you know people who are here to do research or something maybe are able to take them out with white gloves and and yeah, look, look at, at them. them. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful place. All right. Well, we're going to put y'all on hold and get inside the orchard house. See you later. Hey, everybody. Sadly, much of our recording that we did on the road didn't turn out. There was some type of funky interference. So what's coming up next is our regularly recorded conversation after the fact. It was a great time. So just a quick runoff on what we did. Should I just list everything and yeah. we can jump in and talk yeah. details? So we went to Orchard House. We went to the manse, which was the Emerson family home, and Nathaniel Hawthorne lived there for a time. We drove past Bush, which was Emerson's home. Mm-hmm. It wasn't open, so we didn't go in. We went to the Barrow Bookstore, the Concord Bookstore. We interviewed Anne Boyd Rue. We interviewed Jan Turnquest, the executive director, and we took a nice walk around Sleepy Hollow Cemetery. We did. And, and we tried to find Walden Pond unsuccessfully. Yeah, we didn't do that very it well. It was dark. Our, blame the GPS on yeah. that. And we had two really good meals. Yes, yeah, we did. So And we got to talk to Don from Concord Bookstore. Yes. So yeah. Don Renner, I should say, one of the owners. Oh, we went to the library, the Concord oh, Library. yes, the Concord public Free Library. That was gorgeous. We'll definitely oh share some photos yeah. about that. And I'll yeah. write a blog post, too. Yeah. Detail that out. Gorgeous place. Right. So so let's just start again a little bit. So when we first got there, we went to the public library. There are busts of all these famous authors. It's unbelievable. All the local famous authors, you know. uh, And actually a huge statue of Ralph Waldo Emerson sitting, mm-hmm. almost like Abraham Lincoln. Yes. <laughs> sitting. And Thoreau. Thoreau, Alcott. Hawthorne. Some other people we yeah. weren't all that familiar yeah. with. Beautiful. But there were a couple busts of Alcott in the library. We took photos with two of them. Yeah. And then the main part, it's another one of these classic New England libraries where the main part is the old, beautiful library. And then there's a more modern edition which I'm noticing typically has children's sections in them, which is interesting. And the in the main older part has three levels, and they're what do you do you call those catwalks? I don't know what those are. Yeah, called. they're more like balconies, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, classic, you know, open area with the three balconies around with all the bookshelves. Right. And we couldn't, sadly, probably for insurance purposes, yeah. you're not allowed out there, which I really wanted to do, but. And, and there were a lot of old bookcases with glass fronts, beautiful wood bookcases that were locked yeah. with very old copies of books. Yeah, and like full runs, different editions of like the complete works of Thoreau, for right. example. And then we walked down the street and we were heading to the Concord bookstore and we saw a sign for a used bookstore, yes. which was Barrow, Barrow Books, books yeah. yeah, which was a used bookstore. It was wonderful. Yeah, we went in there and we had a look around. They they specialize in, in Concord authors and history Mm -hmm. children's books and also literature in general so it's used and also rare books yeah and they had some beautiful sets of used rare books as well yeah it was the owner's sister who was Mm -hmm. there working and she gave us um a flyer of theirs they also have an on an audio series oh right it looks like their own um podcast so we're going to check that out as well and then we went to Concord Bookstore. Thankfully, Don Rennert was there, the owner. She's somebody that we've met through Booktopia. Well, you did. I hadn't met oh, her. Oh, that's right. You hadn't yeah. met her. That's yeah. right. I've met her. But she looked familiar. But then, yeah. you know, you see pictures of people from Booktopia. Right. So, that's yeah. True. And um, fantastic bookstore. Yeah. Such a good bookstore, as a matter of fact, that we went back 
a second we time. Did, yeah. We went twice in one day. Yeah. Well, it was so much fun because we were standing up front at the front of the store talking with her. And uh, we watched two customers hand sell books to each yeah. other. Some some woman had a book in her hand and, and she's like, oh, my God, that's so good. And the other woman's like, oh, is it good? I'm going to get it. She's like, oh, and you should read this. And so they right. both ended up buying the right. books. Walked so out that of, was kind yeah, of fun. The bookseller sitting behind the cash register. Yeah. <laughs> That's great, though. I mean, yeah, that no, it is was such wonderful. A, yeah, a, a fantastic, vibrant, yes, experience oh, to witness. And it was just a bookstore. I thought it was going to be a really small bookstore. Just I don't know why I had that impression, and it was not. It's really sizable, beautiful magazine section. Mm-hmm. Yeah, incredible it was cool. cookbooks. It's, it's been around since like what 1940, mm-hmm. I think. So it's yeah. well established, and it has probably the best local author section of all time. <laughs> it's so funny. We did post a picture of that on our social media because. Yeah. Local authors, you know, Emerson, Thoreau, Hawthorne, Alcott. It's like, wow. Right. I think pretty, pretty you, strong lineup. Didn't you say at one point, I wonder what it'd be like to be like a newbie local author? Oh, here? I know. Yeah. Like, how can one compete? <laughs> <laughs> what if your name is Alcone? <laughs> um, anyway, then we went, we had a quick lunch, and then we went to the Orchard House, which is the home of Louisa May Alcott and yes. the Alcott family. Where um, she wrote Little Women. Right. We did a tour. Other works. Yeah, we did the tour. It, it was, was fabulous. A great tour. To stand in the room where she wrote Little Women. And there's the desk that her dad built her. Mm-hmm. Kind of like around the, was it a chimney maybe or something? Or Some like kind a of window frame. Yeah, yeah, I'm not really sure. So she got to see out of kind of like both windows. Right. And then later on she bought her own desk that... It looked like it was a little bit higher and it was slanted, so probably yeah. more comfortable. More of a writer's desk. But, you know, she was, she had already been published. Her kitchen sketch it. Kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> I have food on the brain. Her hospital sketches book. That's what it was called, right? Hospital sketches. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is about her time, you know, at serving very briefly as a nurse in the in the Civil War. Been published with some acclaim and her publisher asked her to write this book. Yeah. And she really didn't want to write it. And she wrote it in three months. I'm talking about Little Women. I'm sorry. And she wrote 14 hours a day. So she taught herself to be ambidextrous because she was writing by hand. And they they had samples of her writing. And I had said to Chris before the docent told us that, I was like, that's funny, this piece of paper makes it look like like she's left-handed but then when you looked on her other desk because they had a piece of writing on each of those little desks that were sitting beside each other it looked righty and sure enough the docent said she taught herself to do that because she was writing 14 hours a day and getting hand cramps i'm sure absolutely yeah i mean a lot of writers had problems i don't know willa cather had some kind of bad problem with her wrist yeah i I imagine it's probably some kind of carpal tunnel sure yeah be writing and you know she's writing with a a dip fountain pen back then yeah there was no like soft little rubbery thing on the tip of her pen Yeah. yeah And um, we, we did this tour. The tour starts with a little video of someone in character. Actually, turns out it's the executive director <laughs> of the Orchard House. But um, there was a group, a family with six children. And one of them, I would I want to say she was probably 10. Yeah, 10, 11. Oh, God, yeah. she was adorable. And when the, when the person narrating the, you know, this video says... She's pretending to be Louisa May Alcott, I should say. And she's she's talking about how, you know, the publisher kind of forced her hand to write this book. And they wanted 
Joe to marry to marry Lori, Lori and she's like, I wasn't gonna do that. Yeah. That was the way she rebelled. And the the little girl turns around. She's like, I wanted them to get I married know. so bad. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, this family was so cute. Because uh, every now and then, when the narrator would say something, they'd look at each other and they'd smile or they'd gasp. Yeah. And then all through the tour, the kids were so inquisitive yeah. and respectful and excited, engaged. Yeah, yeah, totally engaged, total fans. Yeah. And I think they, she might have been. I think there was a boy who was a little bit younger than her. Mm-hmm. And then the oldest kid looked like she might have been like what sixteen yeah. or so. Yeah. Um, and then there was also a, a middle-aged couple, and the man was asking a lot of questions. Yeah. And then yeah, it so, was a good tour. It was a really great tour. Yeah. And, and in part, I mean, the docent was really great. Mm-hmm. But the, the other people on the tour were a lot of fun and yeah. enthusiastic and asked great questions. And I'm, I'm con- forgetting the name. Was the sister, was it in real life, the sister May? Was she the artist? Yeah. There's also, I, this was my favorite part of being in the house. For those parents out there who've had their children, you know, like write on the walls and <laughs> color on the walls with crayon, etc., well, she was the the sister that was really the artist in tr- in real life and the one that was sent to Europe to study. But around, like, in her room, around the window frames and stuff, she's just, she was sketching. She was drawing, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful drawings. And then this, the, what the docent told us is the parents let her really just use any surface she could find. So she also mm-hmm. found these pieces of wood and did, like, fire branded yeah, sketches the, I forget something. what that's called but yeah. it's, it is a form of, there's a name for it yeah. where you burn into the wood yeah and so there were those as well mm-hmm. I mean it, that part the art in the house I turned to Chris at one point because a couple of her pieces that she had done in Europe were also on the walls and I was like there must be millions of dollars worth of art in this house you know yeah. I shouldn't have just said that out loud I might give some art thief a, yeah. you know, an idea and sadly she died just when her art was really becoming famous yeah. but she'd been shown several times and I love the owls like Louisa was really into owls yeah and so May had painted owls in Louisa's room like yeah. this owl right above the fireplace that she painted when she got home from the Civil War and was still recuperating right. from her illness. She painted this owl right above the fireplace for her to see. Yeah, it was really cool. I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And then after that, I think we went back to the Concord Bookstore. Well, we interviewed Anne We and interviewed Jan. Anne and Jan. And yeah, and yeah. so we got to, the, next to the Orchard House, Is the, their offices are up a path. So we went up there and it was the tail end of um, Anne's book signing mm-hmm. so there's a there was a conversational educational kind of series going on all week up at orchard house and we didn't get a chance to hop into that but we caught Anne at the end of her day of presenting so it was also really cool to walk into this house that was just filled with probably educators and just people who were really big interested fans, yeah. yeah and big fans we were able to hop in a little space there and interview Anne boyd rue and jan turnquist yeah such an amazing conversation I that we had with them and and so much great energy yeah like you're saying like yeah. so many enthusiastic people yeah so and as Emily said earlier we'll air those interviews in a in a future episode yeah in August in August but one of the things just back to the house oh, and the desk and I was just thinking you know the Mr. Alcott just seems like Obviously, I have issues with him. Yeah, Chris has some Al- Branson I've, Alcott issues. I don't think I've hidden that very well. Um, he just seems like kind of a dink to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, what a lovely gesture that he built a desk for yeah. Louisa. Yeah. And that they let 
Mang draw all over the house. And it was funny because the docent said, they let her draw wherever she wanted to on the house as long as she did her best work. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was really kind of funny. Well, it's funny because when Chris said that, like, oh, how lovely that the dad built a a desk for her. I turned to her and I was like, yeah, so she can make a living for the family. (laughs) You know, I I didn't have the same attitude. (laughs) Well, and another thing, too, there was a a painting, a portrait of Louisa on the wall in the dining room. And the docent asked everybody, how old do you think she was in this painting? She kind of looked to me like she was pushing 60. Mm. She was 39 years old when that portrait was painted, and she hated it. Um, But she was actually aging prematurely from the mercury poisoning she experienced from the, quote, medicine she received from her illness during the Civil War. Right. So she suffered from extreme aches and pains because of that mercury poisoning, and then aged prematurely. She was Mm -hmm. 39, and she looked... Like, you know, she's in her 50s, 60s. One thing that was funny is they kept pointing out pictures like that one, you know, paintings and saying, Louisa hated that. Hated that. <laughs> and I kept thinking, boy, that's not very nice, you know, to like, okay, she hated that portrait. So that's the one you're going to put front and center, right. you know, when you walk into this room. But, yeah. you know, I guess that's what happened. It was a big one and it has to go somewhere. Yeah, I, I guess. I guess. <laughs> but it was really cool. And I, I we both highly recommend yeah. a visit to Orchard House. Because yeah. the house architecturally was pretty interesting. And then mm-hmm. um, obviously learning more about the Alcott's. Is right. Cool. Yeah. And, it, and they have a wonderful gift shop, too. Yeah. And if, you know, we've talked about this in the past, too. If you just want to support that place you can join yeah and become a member and um you know i didn't i didn't get that how much it was but i'm sure you can look online as a matter of fact i'll look that up and if i find something i'll put it in the show notes because cool. it's a wonderful way to support these nonprofits that are trying to keep the world afloat absolutely you know? yeah after that we did go back to concord, concord bookstore. bookstore and looked around a little we only had about 20 minutes because they closed at six o'clock that yeah. day so we did a bit of a more in-depth browse and the damn book i wanted to get was gone yeah there was one copy and when she walked in she was like oh that's the one i'm gonna get and then when we were about to walk out she's like that's gone yeah (laughs) well actually when we went back it was in a different place oh right because there was only one copy so they moved it Mm -hmm. um and then yeah then it was gone so i'll just have to their book Uh, yeah because i just saw a review on it too the chicago review press just shared a review of that book. So, do you remember the name? More of to it? come on that. No, we'll it was something. Yeah, I, I'll know it when I see it, and I didn't write it down. That's but okay. it's something yeah. about the sea. Yeah, it's a reissue of somebody's first novel. It came out, I think, originally, like over ten years ago. But it's a reissue, so. And we're talking about it like it's a big mystery, so we'll talk about it with an actual yeah. title moving forward. <laughs> and then we went to Sleepy Hollow, and we toured we Authors Ridge, yes. which is where a lot of the famous authors are buried, and it's really cool. Yeah. It's huge. It is huge. I had no idea. It is a huge cemetery. Yeah. And we bought a map of the cemetery at Orchard House, which we conveniently left in the car right. when we actually <laughs> walked to Sleepy Hollow. So we didn't have it with us, but... We did see signs for Authors Ridge right. to get there, and that's where Emerson, Hawthorne, Thoreau, the Alcotts are buried. And it was interesting to me because there were a lot of people who left offerings at Henry's headstone and a lot of people who left offerings at Louisa's, but there was nothing 
at Hawthorne's site. And, like, I used to be such a Hawthorne geek. I just really was into him for a while. And I actually didn't even take a picture of his (laughs) touchstone. (laughs) After all of that, I took pictures of everybody else's, but but not his. So it's kind of, I guess, his his star is on the decline, apparently. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. From the lack of interest in his headstone because there was only well with emerson's there was a kind of a fence around it yeah. and there was also a sign saying you know fresh freshly Rest. seated don't yeah. walk on it please so there was only one little offering yeah but people left pens post. and pencils and quotes and pennies and yeah. all sorts of things it was really cool yeah. yeah it was really beautiful to to be there and to see it and at elcott's stone there's a bench there so we sat at the bench and just as we were sitting there, the sun was kind of streaming, slanting an hour or two before sunset. So, like, her headstone was, like, lit up. Yeah, And the flag cool. behind it was lit up. It was pretty beautiful. Yeah, it was very cool. And then we saw a little baby fox run across the cemetery, and I thought maybe that was the ghost of Nathaniel Hawthorne. <laughs> So that was really great, and then we went and grabbed another meal, and then... Well, yeah, we kind of had to get out of there, because the mosquitoes in Sleepy Hollow, they mean business. They mean business. Like, I hit one, and it just looked at me and flew away. Right, exactly. And they were biting us through our clothing. Yeah, I had a thick shirt on, and it bit me through that, (laughs) so we had to flee. Yeah, we did. Quickly. But we fled to dinner, which maybe was a mistake. We probably should have gone to look for Walden Pond when there was more light, because by the time we were finished dinner, it started to rain... And then we were driving in the dusk well, all around looking well, for Well, we went bone. to the manse first. Oh, After that's dinner, right. we went to okay. the manse, uh, right. which is, you know, the Emerson home slash where Hawthorne lived for a couple years after he first got married. And we walked. It was closed and everybody's gone by the time we got there. But we did walk around the property a little bit. It's so beautiful there. There was an empty little free library, so we popped. I had happened to have a few books in my car to put in a free library, so we yeah. popped those in there. <laughs> And then we went searching then for we Walden looked, Pond. Yeah, yeah, for Walden Pond. And we did not find it. Our GPS took us in two places, and there was nothing. Including someone's drive, personal driveway, yeah. which didn't seem like a good plan. Yeah. So, yeah. So we, we to, figured it yeah. was dark by that time, so we headed home. Because we're definitely going to go back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was so fun to be there with you, Chris, because you're such a history buff. You know, I just didn't know all that was there. So. Oh, it's so amazing. I mean, yeah. there's even more. Like, the behind where the manse is... Um, there's a bridge that you can see and that's where like the first shots of the Revolutionary War were fired. Wow. The whole Minuteman National Park mm-hmm. is kind of commemorating that. So yeah. there's a lot to do and see. Yeah. So we just we just dipped our toe in the water, but yeah. it was a good day. It was I had fun. a really yeah. good time. We yeah. kind of walked around the um the inn too there, which is on the same street with the manse. Mm-hmm. And that inn was built, it opened in like 1719, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, yeah. Old. Old. Old and fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, and as I said, you might hear some, there might be a little bit of redundancy because some of our little audio clips we did while we were there, Chris is mm-hmm. going to tack in here somehow. So. Yeah. Bear with we'll us. We had a good goes. time. Yeah, yeah, we're experimenting because yeah, we yeah. want to take you on these joint jobs yeah. with us. So yeah. we're starting to experiment with how we can best do that. Right. Yeah. And then taking us back into the current day, I had a little biblio adventure at our local bookstore, Breakwater Books. Yeah. I went to hear Carl Zimmer speak, and he has a new book out called She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. 
He is someone that I had heard also on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Okay. He was interviewed, and it was such a compelling interview. And then I just happened to wander into Breakwater one day and saw that he was coming, and I kind of couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out he lives in Guilford. That's awesome. Yeah, he's a Guilford resident, but he writes... I want to say a weekly column in the New York Times, a science column. So he's a science writer, mm-hmm. writes for Discover Magazine or Discovery Magazine. I can't remember which one it is. And um, this is a fascinating book about genes and DNA and heredity. And he had a situation where years ago he and his wife were starting to consider having children and he wanted to have his DNA studied to see if he had any diseases that he would potentially be passing on to his coming heirs, Mm -hmm. you know. And so this was an idea that was kind of in his head for a long time. And then he decided to do further research because now everyone's going out and doing this like 23andMe testing and finding out these things, which he says those tests are very peripheral, you know, glimpses into your true DNA and the heredity that you have with your family and that sort of thing. But he's very smart. His book is told with different stories from there were people there who were deep into reading it, who really were enjoying it. Sadly, I don't think it's a book I'm going to get to in the near future, but Mm -hmm. I, but I, what I think I am going to do is look for it on audio when I, when I'm ready, Mm -hmm. because I think it would be very interesting he talks a lot about kind of the um, fallout. I'm going to use it. That sounds kind of like a negative word, and I don't mean it necessarily in a negative way, but of what's happening with the ability to go deeper with this DNA testing and genetic mutating, essentially. So one of the stories he tells is that they're they're working on creating a mosquito that prevents malaria so there would be no malaria and he tells the story he tells it on his fresh air episode i highly recommend you listen to it but it's also in the book obviously about going to this lab where they're creating these you know breeding these mosquitoes so what does it have but, antibodies in it and it yeah. injects people with that I'm not sure. So I, don't, I don't remember that part. Flying around? I or? think it's either that or they just, they themselves cannot get malaria, okay. the mosquitoes. So they can't pass it on. I'm not sure which way it goes. That's a good question. But there's the scientific question, and it made, this made me think of Jurassic Park, you know, like what happens once they let them out? There's no turning back. Yeah. Right? right. And he talked about something, I think it was called a horny toad. Is that what it's called? I probably have that wrong, but anyway, some toad that was released in Australia that was meant to combat something that was eating the sugar cane, I think, Mm -hmm. on the farms. And, you know, they let them loose and then they decide, well, but I want to eat that animal and that animal and that animal. And there's no turning back. It's like kudzu was released in the south to combat something and now it's destroyed areas and... So the same question applies to humans, right? I mean, what happens when you start to decide that a certain hereditary gene mutation, we, we just want to do away with dwarfism or something like that? Right. Well, there's nothing wrong with being a dwarf, you know? So that might not be the right word anymore. A small person, I'm sorry if I offended anybody with that one. But Well, people talk about it in terms of gay and lesbian right, as well, right. you know, like, so we can eradicate that. Right. I mean, we could genetically inter. Yes. You know, you can. I mean, yeah. I remember the rage in the '90s being, you can eventually pick your child's eye color, exactly, and hair color, hair color height, and all of that, all yeah. of that. And so he talks a lot about that, and um, 
And also just that how the, how it's being used, even when you go out and you do this 23andMe or something, you know, your information is now available. So there's a whole ethical component to this and how they recently solved that Golden State murder, is that mm-hmm. what that was called? Was that they, the, the police had some DNA evidence and they kind of just open sourced it. Mm-hmm. And then they found people that were related to this person. And those people had no idea that yeah. their DNA was being used in that way. So there's obviously a whole bunch of, a whole new area of medical ethics yeah. that are being created by this. And Well, you know, when you do that. those tests, like you do check whether or not you want your stuff right. to be included. Right. And I think a lot of people want it to be included because they want to be helpful. They right. don't, they didn't anticipate it would right. be used for law enforcement. Right. right. They want it to be helpful because as he points out, it builds the database. Right. And as more people get tested, there's a larger database, which is good for people who are interested in that. Yeah. But there's privacy issues yeah. with it. So incredibly compelling man. His presentation was great. If you get a chance, like I know he's going to be at the Guilford Library the end of July, I think. He's on his book tour now. If you get a chance to see him, I highly recommend it. And I think it would be a great read. Yeah. And he has, I want to say, 10 other books or something. He's he's a very prolific writer. And he also, um, on his website, was talking about how he kind of fell into writing mm. and never thought he'd be a writer. And it was interesting. I guess his brother is a writer. So one of the questions that someone asked in the Q&A was, you know, when you did your, because he had his whole genome, you know, tested, or I don't know what the right word is. And he, she, she said, did you find that, you know, there's like a writer gene? that Because <laughs> you and your brother are both writers? And he laughed and he said, no, I, you know, that has never occurred to me. But so anyway, again, I could talk about him forever because I loved his presentation. Well, but So did he have, does he have offspring now? He does. He does. He has okay. two daughters. And this, that whole thing happened a long time ago because oh, okay. one of his daughters was at the event and they're teenagers okay. now. So. And he said mostly he didn't find anything, you know, too frightening. I guess there was something that showed that he was going to, be a little bit more overweight than others and he was like thanks mom and dad you know but um so again carl zimmer she has her mother's laugh the powers perversions and potential of heredity and by the way i love that title because that's part of it is what he talked about is how once you have children there are things about them that are obviously it's like oh she sounds just like her mom when she laughs you know yeah so um that whole nature nurture and then i also watched two movies that were based on books i watched I went to, I finished reading March by Geraldine Brooks, which we're going to talk about coming up. And I was all interested in the Civil War and I got on for all my streaming things and said, I'm going to watch a movie about the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up watching instead Me Before You by Jojo Moyes or or based on the book by Jojo Moyes. Um, If any of you have read this book, she's a very readable author. She has a bunch, I'm pretty sure she's Australian. She has a bunch of books out. Mm. I want to say she's like the Jodie Piku of Australia. Oh, interesting. And it's a a love story, kind of a slightly a Beauty and the Beast kind of a love story about a young man who came from great wealth and had a very prosperous and exciting life and becomes quadriplegic. And the woman who comes as a job to start taking care of him, who's had a very sheltered life and not gone and seen many things. And he starts to introduce her to the world. Um, But there's a subtext about him and his family that I won't say because it's a spoiler. But I thought that the movie was a great adaptation. And I'm usually kind of ho-hum on adaptations of movies, you know. But I thought it was really good. 
Very enjoyable. Me Before You, Jojo Moyes. And then my son rented a movie on Amazon Prime, so I had it for 36 hours. So I was like, I'll watch this. Why not? And it was Jack Reacher. Oh, he watched that? (laughs) This is Lee Child, you know, who people wax poetic about Lee Child and Kingman. It's like her guilty pleasure every time he comes out with a book. It's a he, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't understand it. It Oh, really? The storyline was too complicated for me, partly because I don't think I was listening or watching it with all my full attention. But for people who like those kind of um, police procedural type things, you probably would like it. Um, I don't know if it was a good adaptation because I did not read the book. See, I don't like to watch police mystery shows all that Mm -hmm. much, really. Other than like, you know... Agatha Christie. Yeah. Like all of the current contemporary ones. I just, I don't watch them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't either because I don't, it's too, uh, The boy. last like law enforcement related show that I watched consistently was Charlie's Angels. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that gives you an idea. Yeah. <laughs> oh my. So those were all my adventures. Did you have any outside of uh, Concord when we, when Since we did then? Two? No, no, other than being at the Institute Library, Mm -hmm. um, nope. What about some upcoming adventures? You're going on a big trip. Yeah, I'll be uh, heading off to Chicago, so I'm I'm definitely going to be hitting the American Writers Museum. I'm jealous. And I want to see the new Gwendolyn Brooks statue. Those will probably be the, the literary things. I'm meeting... Our friend Suzanne, who's a Booktopian. Nice. Uh, yeah, so should Good. be fun. I'm heading up to Vermont, so I looked up bookstores, and I'm going to go to the Flying Pig Bookstore in Shelburne, Vermont. Cool. I love that name. I think it's, I think it might be known kind of as a children's bookstore, but mm. more to come on that. And then I want to go back to Crow Bookshop, which is in Burlington, which I loved. And then um, another one that came up was called Chubby Muffin. <laughs> Gosh, which what a name of course you got to go there yeah. you know they, and I take it they have a cafe i think they have a cafe and then i think it might be one of those where it's more of a cafe but with books on the wall uh, i don't know okay. kind of like curious. atticus books here yeah but i just want to go to a place called the chubby muffin because it sounds wonderful <laughs> <laughs> sounds like fun excellent well one more thing i wanted to say um coming up is there's another readathon, Dewey's 24-hour readathon. They're doing their first summer readathon on July 28th, and they're calling it a reverse readathon because instead of starting at 8 a.m. Eastern time, they're starting at 8 p.m. because oh, it's summertime. Okay. And so it starts in different time zones at different times, but it's you know 8 o'clock Eastern time, which is what I pay attention to because that's where we are. Right. So, yeah, starting at 8 p.m., I think it'll be fun because, you know, you'll have the whole summer day. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. So. And so the point is to read all the way through until the next day. Well, or to read as much as you can within that 24-hour period. Yeah. You know, it's um, there's no hard and fast rule. It's do whatever works for you. But I think one thing that a lot of people like is that it's a day that they can dedicate to reading. And a lot of people say, well, I can read whenever I want to. But a lot of people can't. And a lot of people can't read for hours at a stretch normally because they have a lot of other responsibilities and duties and stuff. So it's nice to do as as much as you can to clear the plate and and have a day dedicated to reading and just luxuriating in that if you can. So Did Did you say the date? July 28th. Okay, July 28th. The last Saturday of the month. 
So that's coming up. So that'll be soon yeah. after this episode airs. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So take advantage of that. And then are we talking about, we're talking about upcoming stuff, right? Yeah. So I can say one more thing. I just wanted to let everybody know that on September 15th, this is a way off, but I just wanted to put it out there. I'll be moderating a conversation with Kimberly McCrae, the writer of the Outliers trilogy. And she's also written some mysteries for adults as well. The Outliers trilogy is a YA series. One of her, probably her most well-known adult mystery is Reconstructing Amelia. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. so I have a copy of that that I'm looking forward to reading. Um, but that will be up at the Book Club Bookstore and more in South Windsor, Connecticut, September 15th. Great. And you're today you're heading up there for your Willa Cather I Book am. Club. Yeah, yeah. we're going to talk about one of ours Excellent. So we'll get to hear more about that on the next episode. What about upcoming reads? Well, I have only Middlemarch on my mind at this point. Okay, because you know that's going to take you for a patch. Yes. And then, you know what, with such a big book like that, kind of like After Little Women, sometimes big books, and it doesn't have to be page by big, but Mm -hmm. big stories that swoop you in. Who knows what I'll be in the mood to read after that. Yeah, I could see you ending up with some sort of quick palate cleanser. Yeah, mostly. or maybe some graphic novels. Yeah. I have those advanced reader copies that Naval Institute Press sent, so yeah. Yeah. I'll have something like that. So, yeah, what about you? I'm going to try to um, start Carnegie's Maid by Marie Benedict. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, um, I'm a big fan of Carnegie, who you know was the industrialist who turned philanthropist and opened up public libraries all over the country. Yeah. So I don't, this is a historical novel, I guess, based on his maid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's all I know. So another novel, and I, I'm fascinated by these novels that look at a famous man mm-hmm. through the eyes of the women yeah. around him. It reminds me of when we went to the Mark Twain house and we did one of those tours that was led by a woman in character as the maid. As the maid, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because they kind of see it all. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm interested. And Marie Benedict is one of the authors who is going to be on the historical panel that we are hosting. And we will talk in depth about that on the next episode. That's another September. That's another September, end of September event. So we will talk more in depth about that, we promise, the next (laughs) Next episode. Next episode. Yeah. So now, drum roll. That's the best I can do. <laughs> On to our, our read-along conversation about Geraldine Brooks's March. Yes, and our ongoing uh, Little Women summer read-alongs. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so this is the second book in our summer of Little Women. Right, right. So this is told, it's historical fiction told from the perspective of the father in Little Women who is largely absent because he's off to war yeah he's a he volunteered he's a preacher pastor in the civil war right ministering to the men down there but then what's funny too is i realized as i was reading this also in part two of little women he doesn't really make a reappearance that much either i mean he's obviously not at war anymore yeah, he's there, but he's kind of not. He's not he's, really he's present. He's study. Yeah, he's just mm-hmm. not really present in Little Women at all. Yeah. He's he's a thought. He's And they're writing to him, and he's writing to them, but, yeah. you know, he's not uh, present as Marmy, the mother, is. Right. So. Yeah, and I think that's just kind of reflective of who Branson Alcott was as a man. Right. Because he was not around 
Right. Because he was off preaching and things. And so. Yeah. Well, and just a reminder to people that, you know, Louisa May Alcott, the characters on Little Women were based on her family. Yeah. So the father, the not present father, Mr. March in Little Women, is representative of his her not present father, Branson Alcott. Yeah. So now March, this brings us to... Uh, you know, discussions of historical fiction and what people like in historical fiction and what they don't like in historical Mm -hmm. fiction. And I had a hard time getting into the book. I got the audio version. Mm -hmm. And that is narrated by Richard Easton. And he is, he he does a great job. Uh, You know, it it did hook me. I put it on 1.25 and then 1.5 speed. (laughs) Because he speaks very slowly, like you would imagine Branson Alcott. Right. As we learned at when we were at Orchard House, people sometimes took the long way around the house to avoid him because getting into a conversation with him could last three or four hours. So you can kind of get that vibe from um, Richard Easton's narration of the book. But I I just had a hard time of of seeing... um, (laughs) Mr. Alcott as a man of action, mm-hmm. failed action, mm-hmm. um, but action nonetheless. I just, I have a hard time looking at him as a heroic figure. Yeah, I don't see him as a heroic figure. I mean, I appreciate that he was an abolitionist. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I appreciate his thought process, I guess I would say. You yeah. know, like, I appreciate that he was an abolitionist. I appreciate that he felt like slaves should learn to read. I thought he was a little bit of a dunce in the fact that he didn't realize that there was danger involved in that for them, yeah. you know? I don't think he was a particularly brave person, but I think he had brave ideas, you know? Yeah. And I think the two kind of have to go together. Well, I th- that's one of the things I like. Like, I have a love-hate relationship with him, and I have a love-hate relationship with the book. Mm. Because, like, I do admire his ideals, mm. really. And I agree with him on these ideals that he has. But his execution yeah. of these, uh, it was horrific. Like, everything he touched, he messed up. Yeah. It caused more problems for people. Mm-hmm. And and I think that, you know, it's interesting because in real life, you have leaders and followers. And, and, and maybe people who are really big idealists aren't the best leaders. No, I was going to say, I mean, I have made a career out of working for entrepreneurs. And what I admire about entrepreneurs is that they are idea people. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily then do the work of it, yeah. you know, and that's part of what they're adept at. I mean, and that's, I think that's where Branson really failed, Mr. Alcott, Mr. March, mm-hmm. is you have to be a, become a delegator, yeah. you know, and you have to have people around you who support you or that help your ideas survive in spite of you, which right. is frequently what actually happens, yeah. right? That those people with the ideas just get in the way. Mm-hmm. You know, once their idea has been espoused, it's like, okay, you step aside. Now we worker bees, which is, you know, I'm raising my hand because I'm usually <laughs> one of those. You yeah. know, I mean, I watch those upstairs, downstairs movies. It's like, I know I'd be downstairs keeping the stove stoked, you know, like that would be my job. Yeah. So I think that that's, I, I really do think that that was his situation. And I think, as you've pointed out, the issue was he had four children and a wife who, you know, suffered tremendously, you know, in real life, the the docent at Orchard House was telling us, you know, the kids were hungry. Yeah. They were starving, literally. Yeah, they relied on food being brought by neighbors. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. Because he thought they should eat apples and drink water. Yeah, he was a... And bread, I He think. was a vegan. Yeah. You know, yeah. and he... I guess he didn't force that necessarily on his children, but that's what he, he chose to do. And, right. you know, that's what um, you have in the home. Right. That's why I want to read a, something more about Mrs. Alcott and just yeah. try and get an understanding of her. Because really, I mean, and that's the thing. And I think I, I did relate to Branson Alcott, to this character. Mm-hmm. I related to him at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know... You, you do, t- you know, when you have the best intentions, sometimes when you have the best intentions, you do make messes out of things. And I think here, though, it's a time of war and it's the issue of slavery and there's n- very little margin for error. Yeah. And when you do make a mistake, lives are on the line. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes this novel so horrific. The writing is beautiful. I mean, yeah. her writing about the war and situations and relationships I thought was beautiful. Yeah, I did too. Which is, you know, part of my love part of yeah. the book. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there was a point at the very beginning where he's starting to write letters home where, he, you know, he, Mr. March wants to portray a certain thing to his family, you know, and it reminded me of that movie Life is Beautiful, yeah, which um, takes place in a concentration camp mm. where the dad is creates this whole other, you know, reality for his young son because he doesn't want him to realize where he really is, Mm -hmm. you know. And it kind of, I mean, not to this degree, but it reminded me of, you know, like, what was he going to write home to his little women, you know? You're not going to write about the reality of what he's seeing on a daily basis, you know. Or slaves being, you know, tortured and abused. And so I thought that part did speak to me. But I also, I had some of the same feelings of you. It was like, but what's happening with the people left at home? And there was a point to me where it seemed like he didn't even really need to be there anymore. What was he doing? Oh, my gosh. Right. You know? And that one part where the officer reams him, like, you know, March, what is your problem? You're supposed to be here giving comfort to the men. Right. And all you're doing is stirring them up. Like right. that scene where he comes across a couple Union soldiers rough you know attempt you know at the beginning of roughing up a woman and her teenage daughter and he's outraged Mm -hmm. because you know as i think most people would be but the way he goes about reprimanding the men i don't know like again there's no leadership ability there on his he's just outraged right and so he can't take effective action within that situation and just frustrates the men more and even the women um he expected probably to be patted on the back and the woman is like, your men and your cause are disgusting or whatever right. the word was because yeah. she was a rebel. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was a complicated time, I think, also that we have to remember that, you know. Mm-hmm. But I did I did think he was not. I mean, even there was even a scene where he was supposed to be, I think, kind of providing last rights to somebody. And he was like, well, but he's a Catholic and I'm not a Catholic. And, but I've seen priests right. do it before. <laughs> I think you're supposed to be able to just do anything, you know, like when you're the, you know, chaplain, I think is what they're referred to in times of war. Like, it, you know, religion doesn't matter as much. I think it's more that you're there to provide comfort and figure it out, buddy. You know, I was yeah. kind of like yelling at him, like, I think you can manage, you yeah, know, right. which he did. And then but, he's always feeling guilty. And did yeah. I do the right thing? And yeah. I think, yeah. But I mean, I know Catholics take things very seriously when it comes to 
last rites yeah. and, and things. So I can understand. Yeah, I didn't mean to offend and oh, anybody no. in yeah. the Catholic faith. I'm just saying that he just seemed like, what? Can, I, I felt like at that point I was like, what can you do, Mr. Right. Lurch? Yeah. You know? Oh, I know. It's like, do the right thing and take yeah. care of the guy. Yeah. And that's, you know, hence that yeah. officer going off on him. Right. Like, what is your problem? You're supposed to be helping and you're not. Right. And yeah. with everything, like, yeah. I don't want to give, spo- well, we, this is a spoiler-rich yeah. uh, zone here, but the scene where he had been starting to teach the slaves, and one girl in particular, this is before he actually had the classroom, and he left all of her writing out on his right. table and got drunk the night before, and <sighs> people found it, and the slave Grace is horribly beaten. Right. Right, so the, he didn't seem like someone who thought through the consequences of his actions yeah. very well. Mm-hmm. That would be like my motherly, you know, um, vision of looking at this human being. You yeah. know, it's like, you know, get past your teenage years where you can be forgiven for mm-hmm. not thinking about the consequences of your actions, but yeah. you're a grown man with children. And, well, right, you know. and even the, that teenage even younger person way of looking at the world is in right and wrong and black and white and and that's you know if you're having your ideals a lot of people are like that this is right and this is wrong and that's how they try to go through life i almost said how they march through life yeah interesting (laughs) interesting um but you in in situations you know talking about like situational ethics you can't do that no i mean unless you expect people to die and to be harmed right. and which is what happens which is yeah. what happens yeah. yeah so maybe the book is more brilliant than i even thought it was because i do think it's an excellent book i think it's a, well it won the pulitzer yeah. and was it 2006 or 2007 i can't remember um i wanted to pipe in with a few of our comments from our listeners we had a great a uh, few people piping in on the goodreads page we have a a, you know a page set up for this read-along if you read it you know three months from now don't hesitate Mm -hmm. to come back these pages stay up there and we get notifications when people comment so we'll try and jump in and as do the other people who've commented Mm -hmm. i think and it's a really it's like having an online book club so i really recommend you know if you get the chance and um, one of our listeners um, julie said that she thought she did originally start trying it on audio and she thought the opening war scene was just too tough and she kind of tabled it. But then she came back to it later in print and found mm-hmm. that it was easier to do it that way. And she says she didn't always like March, but appreciated his attempt to teach slaves and former slaves. Yeah. Which absolutely. I agree. I agree. Yes. Um, Sandy said um, that she thought that Brooks did a great job of bringing an imaginary character to life, mm-hmm. which I agree also. And there's also, and we talk with Anne Boyd Rue in that interview that's coming up in August about the confusion of kind of, since it is kind of semi-autobiographical on Alcott's part, and then this reading this Geraldine Brooks, it's like you kind of confuse Branson Alcott with Mr. March. Right. And so I even felt that way reading it. You know, I kind of got a little confused going there. I did too. And I mean, you know, Geraldine Brooks used Alcott's journals to to get a sense of who he was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Sandy also said, if you get a chance to see Geraldine Brooks, the author, live, go. Yeah. She said she was very compelling. Yeah. Yeah. And then Colleen said um, she was very impressed by the descriptions of war in Mm -hmm. the book. And I agree with her. They were hard. Yeah. But I'm definitely... And I know Geraldine Brooks' husband is, I think, like a Civil War biographer or Oh, something. he's written... He wrote um, 
Confederates in the Attic. And he's written multiple books about the Civil War time period. And one about um, John Brown's raid. Okay. Which I can't remember the name of it, but I almost picked it up the other day. Well, it's funny because in the back of our copy, Geraldine Brooks, there's an interview and she said, you know, she was dragged with, <laughs> with her husband to so many of these, you know, historic sites and everything. That it, yeah, yeah, it almost made sense for her to write something that took place in the Civil War. Um, and Colleen also said she could, she, she, you know, sympathized with his sense of survivor's guilt, mm-hmm. which is something that happens during a time of war that, you know, something I don't really understand. I mean, I can intellectually conceptualize of it, but, yeah. you know, it is a different thing. Absolutely. And I think people can drive themselves crazy and, yeah. or, and or to suicide for yeah. wishing that they would have done something differently because... It's like that magical thinking, if I had only done this, they'd be alive. Right, exactly. And yeah. as, I don't remember who says it to him, but that, you know, it's a time of war. You can't, right. you cannot be feeling guilty about right. things because people die. It's yeah. what war is. And yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. And Trisha, my sister, hi, Trisha, said um, that she, when she was reading Little Women, that she kind of forgot the Civil War was going on, mm-hmm. you know, that it was very absent in the book in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, even though it's kind of not, I mean, it's peeps in and out, but I know what she means, like, as you're reading, you kind of forget that that's what's happening in the world during that time, and um, she thought it was wonderful to, you know, read it from this perspective and, mm-hmm. and see that, and she also thought that, she thought that Geraldine Brooks' prose kind of was a nice compliment to Alcott's. She really enjoyed it. Yeah, the language, like yeah. the 19th century vibe yeah. of it, yeah. And Linda, hi Linda, said um, she loved the little bits of Little Women that were sprinkled into yes. March, yeah. which I agree with that. I yeah. love that, and I was waiting to hear something about the aunt's perspective. Because oh. there is that line <laughs> in Little Women where she says something about dismissing March as not having the stamina for something. And right. I thought, oh, this is great that the ant is represented a couple times yeah. in, in that. Yeah. And Linda also posed a question that I think you have an answer for, that she said on a certain page in the hardback that nature was for, referred to with a capital N. Yeah, and I think that's relating to the transcendentalist probably. I mean, I don't know what page it is. Linda, if you... Could you know? Oh, she, she, she told us the. Page. Oh, did she? Yeah, but oh, it was in the hardback version, which we didn't oh, have. Okay. So. Yeah, because you know Emerson's essay that he wrote called "Nature," is kind of like the foundational text of the transcendentalist movement. Right. So I have a feeling it's that nature that he's referring to. Right, and oh, they I talked about that when we were touring the Orchard House. Also, that all of those writers of that time were very moved by nature and mm-hmm. you know so that that made sense to me yeah um, when they told us that. yeah because god was in nature and so being in nature right. was really important right and then one of my favorite comments we got was from gail who said i have no idea what susan sarandon in parentheses <laughs> i mean marmy was thinking when she married mr march <laughs> exclamation point <laughs> A lot of us wonder that, Gail. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you don't always know what you're going to get till yeah. you get them. So. Well, it's so funny because I kind of feel like my own leanings towards being an idealist were triggered by him. Mm. Because I kind of feel like I 
I saw some of myself in him. Oh, interesting. And how dumb you are. Um, well, not thinking it all the way through, well, you maybe, can't. right? Well, you can't because you're so fixated on your ideal. Right. You really can't see what's in front of you. Yeah. You know, so I think yeah. some of my hate part of the reading experience was that, that I yeah. saw myself in him sometimes. Mm, that's interesting. Which is not a flattering thing <laughs> to say, but... Well, I think I mean, that's why this is such a it's such a complex book. Yeah. Well, you know, ideas are complex. I mean, I not to totally do a total sidebar, but you know, in this book Animal Vegetable Miracle that Barbara Kingsolver wrote about, she talked about vegetarianism mm-hmm. and how people, you know, part of why people there are people who think you shouldn't eat animals because they just think eating animals is wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a version of vegetarianism, but there are people who think you shouldn't eat animals because they take too much resource to raise before slaughter. And she said, you know, when they started out on this process, when they started to research, particularly her husband, how much water it takes to raise a vegetable, that's not necessarily a true reason to aim to vegetarianism. So it's a complex question, in other words, is what I'm saying. And I think some of us decide we're going to do something. And you know, you don't necessarily have the information, the resource, or just the time mm-hmm. to think through this decision that you make or yeah. this ideal that you have, yeah. right? Or why you even have it. People have it for different reasons, like right. you're saying. Yeah. And Linda asked, said, too, that she didn't, she wasn't sure about how to take the vegetarianism in the book. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, and, but, like, vegetarianism was huge. Like, there was a huge movement in the 19th century, and it goes way back in time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the ancient Greeks and Romans, some people advocated vegetarian diets back then even. I so. thought some of that was just had to do with the health of animals and that just, you know, seeing people get ill who eat animals because they didn't necessarily have... They didn't have refrigeration right. and things like that. Well, that's the thing. Right. Like, I think, especially if I was living in the 19th century in a city, I'd probably be a vegetarian. Right. Exactly. But even that, like, yeah. you know, what food do you get? I mean, that's why there was this big health food movement in the 19th century, I think because of cities and, and industrialization right. and food spoiling right. and people getting really sick. And now we've come to this point where you can get strawberries from California all year long in Connecticut. And there's something mm-hmm. wrong with that when it comes to resource usage, you yeah. know, which is a, a completely different issue. But I'm just saying my point with that is, you know, so Mr. March's ideals, he had these ideals, but did he think through all of the different aspects of them from all the different angles of yeah. how he was going to bring these things to fruition? Not necessarily. Not at all. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not at all. <laughs> so, and I think we all suffer can suffer from that. I'm trying to make you feel better here, Chris, because oh, I don't think you should feel thanks. bad. <laughs> I don't think you should feel bad. I mean, I think we all have our successes and our failures, mm-hmm. and I think you know most of us have the best of intentions. And yeah. you know, I want to think that Mr. March had the best of intentions. I mean, there was that whole thing with the slave grace that was a little bit odd. I feel like I thought so too, I, and I'm glad you brought that up because I remember. When that part in the book came up, and I was just like, ew, she's into him? Like, <laughs> ew, I just could not see it. It's that whole professor thing, Chris, you know? What's that? I'm just joking, because he was teaching her, you oh. know? Oh, yeah. I'm just kidding, kind know. of. Maybe, yeah. right? Yeah. I don't know. Or just, A yeah. man of authority, or maybe she saw him as her way to escape her situation. I don't know. I didn't get it either. I didn't get it, yeah. yeah. I mean... Yeah. 
It could have also been just, well, who the hell knows? It could have yeah. just been chemistry, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, but I do wonder about Marmy in the book mm-hmm. in, in March and just her her realization, too, like she's so mad. She's so, her anger is so triggered yeah. all the time. Again, we know from Little Woman, Women she's angry all the time. But just you see how it's triggered in, yeah. in the book by, you know, when she finds out certain things about him. But then when she's trying to write home, and she'd been mad about him not writing the truth to her. Right. But then when she sits down to write a letter to the kids, she's like, I can't write the truth. Like, I can't. Like, they're going to be so demoralized and everything. So that just brings up so much about what do you tell people about anything when horrific, from horrific to just a, a hard situation. Right. And I think particularly your children who you just have... A primal desire to protect, mm-hmm. right? Right, and they're both they're there, and both parents are away, right. and yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that part was interesting, but the other thing that I thought was interesting was the portrayal of Mister March trying to inform Marmy of her flying off the handle, like how to handle herself better, yeah. you know. And I was thinking. She's pretty angry, dude. Yeah. You know, like, she's got some reasons to rage. Yes. Oh, my God. That one scene when she's really mad about the aunt offering to take one of the kids off yes. her hand. And she's, you know, he actually, like, pushes her out the door, locks the door, and like, oh, my God, i got to handle this. Right. And so when he walks outside, she's still raging. Right. And she hits something, and he grabs the switch and hands it to her, and she slashes his face with it. And I was just like, damn, you know? I, I mean, know. he's bleeding. Right. And then they start making out and getting it on. I was just like, ew, like, that's just a little twisted. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, you know, that is one of those kind of twisted things about human psychology. Yeah, well, I think it's also about understanding your partner, you know, and what they need. Okay, let's let her get it out of her system. Oh, you're going to switch me? Okay, good. Done. I don't know. I'm kidding. But... (laughs) I mean, there were, you know, I, I mostly listened as well. I read a little bit, but I mostly listened. And I, there were times when I was just talking to it, like, what the heck is going on? Yeah. It was, I'm glad we read it. I'm really yeah. glad we read it. I know you had a rough start getting into it. Um, yeah. But I, well, I was and I was really happy glad. when it was over. Oh, um, me I, too. On Goodreads, I said, you know, I'm glad I read it. I'm glad it's over. Me too. Because it was yeah. just like, wow. But yeah. really, I mean, I, I'm thinking about it all the time. And, and I know we've just been to Concord and Orchard yeah. House and stuff too. And so, you know, we've been learning more about Mr. Alcott. Right. And it's just, it's complex. It is. It's so complex. Yeah. And I, I, I had a bit of schadenfreude when I was at the Institute Library. I was looking at some of the older books on, the, like, the history of American literature. And I'm sorry, I don't have the name in front of me, but it was a book that was, it came out in 1919. It was written by some Harvard professor who was kind of a stuffy piece of work himself. But he had a chapter in there called, the Lesser Men of Concord. <laughs> <laughs> and in that chapter, he rips on Alcott and Thoreau. Oh, wow. But from a very elitist position, right. saying that, you know, they came from farmers, and that's pretty much all they'll ever be is that lower class of wow. farmer. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Pretty much. I was like, damn. That, it was harsh. 
but the, this man who wrote it was just such an elitist snob. But it well, still felt kind of good to see Elcott yeah. being ripped. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, I thought it was hilarious when we were in the Orchard House and they have a picture of Branson Alcott out front wearing his top hat <laughs> and holding his cane. And that's where apparently he would hold court. Yeah. And that's where Nathaniel Hawthorne would walk miles out of his way <laughs> to, to not have to go. Because apparently if you crossed Branson Alcott's path, he would literally hold you hostage and talk to you for three hours or more. Yeah. And I I thought that was hilarious because I am the type that will cross the street when I see, like, back in my hometown. I don't do that here. But, you know, it's like I don't have the time to yeah. get caught up in conversation with that person today, yeah. you know, so I could totally relate. And I, it just cracked me up like about who you know like I, I wanted to see an like have a drone over Branson Alcott and see the, all the avoidance that went on in Concord when he was holding That's court so and I wondered if there was like a game of telephone where people were like he's not out or he's out avoid it take the southerly route you know okay, it's too funny one of the things I found out, there's a whole museum dedicated to Fruitlands. Oh. I guess that happened in a town called Harvard, Massachusetts, which is oh. a dozen miles or so from Concord. Hmm. And there's a museum there now, so. Hmm. Interesting. Who knew? Well, it'll also be interesting if we really wanted to dig into history, whether any of the concepts of that did survive in other commune-type living areas mm. or something like that. You know? Well, they did say that a lot of his ideas are now common practice, you know, like he was credited with creating recess in schools oh, so right. kids could get that's up and move right. their bodies. Yeah, and, that's a good one. That's and, right. I forgot yeah. about that. One of the things that that Harvard professor mocked in his uh, chapter was Alcott, um, one of his philosophies was that if a child does wrong and a child does something wrong, that they don't get punished. But they have to see other people punished for, you know, which hence Marmy smacking him with, right. you know, <laughs> right. because, yeah, so um, that is something that got mocked a lot. And mm-hmm. but you see uh, that happened to me when I was a kid in school, somebody did something wrong and the person who really did the thing wrong, we all got punished for it. Yeah kind of situation yeah not exactly the same because it wasn't like yeah not exactly a good analogy well jacob went to a school where it was everyone was responsible for maintaining the school and Mm -hmm. keeping it clean and doing things like that and so if one person left a terrible mess you know then everybody cleaned it up Mm -hmm. so you know that is kind of a that's a a form of restorative justice that's really healthy i think Mm -hmm. you know yeah so you know, maybe maybe Branson Alcott was responsible for some interesting things with restorative justice. I mean, if I had the patience, I might read a little bit more about him. But I think mm-hmm. I'm ready to move on now from Mr. Alcott. Yeah. Slash Mark. Yeah. <laughs> the only the only the glimmer that I have is that Emerson really appreciated Alcott and the conversations that they had. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. think there is that, you know, you can appreciate different people for different things. And if I mean, Emerson was a man of the mind who appreciated Alcott's ideas. Right. You know, that's one thing. Whereas other people wouldn't appreciate that because there's no action involved. Right. And they're more action-based. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. you were saying. Well. All right. You another. Have, uh, I, I you, thought I would tell just a little. If you're done talking about March, I thought I would just t- tell something funny that Don said to us when we were up there. Do you remember? We were we were talking to Don Renner, who's the owner of the Concord Bookstore, and on our drive up, I had said to Chris, or maybe even once we arrived, when we were maybe it was when we were leaving the library, I said, 
I wonder what it was would be like to grow up here and go to high school here. Like, you know, I, I have this imagination that the English departments would be phenomenal, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. And so Chris asked Don because Don has kids in the school system. And um, she talked a little bit about some of the interesting programs. They do have some cool stuff there. But she said that her children also got to the point where they would poke a lot of fun at Don because... <laughs> You know, there are so many famous authors walked all around the, all the paths of yeah. Concord. And Don, obviously, as the owner of a bookstore, loves literary people and history, etc. And she said she got to the point where they'd be taking a walk somewhere and her kids would pick up a pine cone and be like, Hey, Mom, I wonder if Louisa Alcott ever held this pine cone, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, you know, just... You know, as children like to do, poke yeah. fun at us, you know, yeah. parents. But um, so that I thought that was hilarious. And yeah. I could totally see my kids doing something like that to me yeah. if I kept telling them who, you know, the famous authors that, you know, walked these paths in front of them. Yeah, you know, so absolutely. That was funny. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> March so, by Gwent. Gwent. March by Geraldine, Geraldine Brooks. Brooks. Yeah, I know you've been confusing me because you've been talking about Gwendolyn Brooks. Well, I've been, you? yeah, I've confused them a couple times. And I was talking to somebody, I was like, March by Gwendolyn Brooks. I was like, that doesn't sound right. In it, it wasn't right. Geraldine, Geraldine yeah. Brooks. And reminder, everybody, that we're hosting a giveaway for Anne Boyd Rue's book, Meg, Joe, Beth, Amy, The Story of Little Women and Why It Still Matters. It's a really fun read, I'm here to tell you. Get your emails to us by July 31st, and we will do a random generator number thing. Chris does her magic to pick the winner. So until then. Until then. Happy happy reading. reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.